Welcome to Kidney Commute, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation, driven by the interprofessional team with emphasis on the patient voice. In each episode, we will incorporate the perspectives of the different members of the kidney team as well as the patient. Join our huddle on all things kidney health and allow new perspectives to inspire collaboration in your practice. Eligible listeners can earn credit along the way. The Kidney Commute, a continuing education podcast planned by the team for the team. Hello and welcome to the Kidney Commute, an NKF podcast. My name is Kristen O'Toole, a transplant dietitian at UW Health Hospitals and Clinics, and I'll be the host of today's discussion. Today, we'll be discussing a topic that is important for all of our kidney patients, whether they are pursuing transplant or not, frailty. Operationalizing and identifying frailty has become a topic of research in the last few years and can have significant implications on quality of life and for those pursuing transplant, transplant candidacy, and transplant outcomes. We'll explore the definition of frailty, risk factors, implications, and interventions to address this complex syndrome. Joining me today is an esteemed group of panelists who I'll now ask to introduce themselves. Hello, thanks for having me here today. My name is Nirali Patel. I am a transplant nephrologist at the University of Cincinnati in Ohio. And my name is Summer Van Arsdale. I'm so happy to be here today. I'm a transplant dietitian with Banner University Medical Center in Tucson. Hello, everyone. My name is Sunshine Barhorst, and I am a nurse practitioner at UCMC in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thank you for having me. My name is Lee Creasy. I'm a pre-transplant coordinator at Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist in North Carolina. I'm happy to be here. My name is Amanda Early. I'm a social worker at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center working in the kidney pancreas transplant department. I've been here for a little less than a year, and then previously I worked in um, a dialysis unit for over 10 years. Good morning. Uh, my name is Tony. I'm glad to be here with you folks. I was on dialysis for six years, and I received my kidney last year, so I have a lot to share with with people. All right. Well, it's really nice to have everyone here today. So we'll go ahead and get started and dive into this topic. Let's start by defining frailty syndrome. Sunshine, would you define frailty syndrome for our listeners and how this differs from sarcopenia and what impact frailty can have on quality of life? Sure. In general terms, frailty refers to a person's decrease in mental and physical resilience. Resilience meaning that someone is able to bounce back when there is an illness or a stressor. Frailty is not really defined as one symptom, such as sarcopenia or loss of muscle mass, but rather a syndrome with multi-system impairment associated with increased vulnerability to stressors. Mostly, frailty can be associated with older age, However, the cause can be multifactorial. Others at risk can be those with a disability or a medical, um, chronic medical condition. Physical markers can include functional decline or low physical activity, malnutrition, eating disorders, sarcopenia again, decrease in strength or balance, or anything that decreases walking performance. Some common psychological markers can include cognitive decline, dementia, learning disabilities, and mental health disorders. The impact that frailty can lead to is 
Basically, cumulative declines across multiple physiologic systems and markers, and they can commonly coexist, causing this feedback loop, making those with frailty a population at risk for decreased quality of life, further decline, and increased risk for death. Now, we know that those with functional decline have a higher fall risk and increased hospitalization rates. Those with malnutrition have poor wound healing and underlying metabolic disturbances. Many will depend on someone to care for them, whether it's grocery shopping, cleaning, driving, going to a doctor's appointments. And dependency of a care provider also opens up social aspects, access to resources, and sometimes social isolation. Cognitive decline, mental health can lead to poor judgment and insight, compliance, and lack of knowledge to their medical condition. And all of these factors can start to build, if you can only imagine, and contribute to worsening health outcomes. Wow, that certainly has quite an effect on somebody's life. So if frailty syndrome affects a person's resilience to stressors and overall functional reserve, then people living with organ failure seem like they'd be at even higher risk for developing this syndrome. What risk factors increase the risk for becoming frail in someone living with end-stage renal disease? And what is the prevalence of frailty in ESRD? I can take that. So like Sunshine has mentioned and, and what you kind of pose in this question, frailty is the state of, of decreased physiological reserve and diminished ability to recover from physiological stressors. So there are many factors here, major ones being age and comorbidity, such as other diseases. So comorbid diseases that contribute to frailty in general are in advanced kidney disease are commonly associated um, with anemia, diabetes, heart disease, and end-stage kidney disease is associated with malnutrition and chronic inflammation. There are also hormonal changes and there's low physiological activity. And all of these really contribute to frailty in this population. Now, Going into age, uh, we know overall that the body undergoes an age-associated decline in physical, cognitive, physiological, the immune system itself as well. Now, with all this information, um, it's not surprising that on average, one out of 10 adults over the age of 65 is frail. And in our patients with end-stage kidney disease, Frailty is even more prevalent with studies, some of them even suggesting up to 45, as high as 70% of those who are dialysis dependent. So it's a very high prevalence rate uh, in the patients that, that we see with end-stage kidney disease. Wow. Thank you for sharing that data. It's just amazing how prevalent it can be. So we know that frailty then is a complex syndrome that develops due to cumulative declines in multiple systems and that being frail is associated with poor outcomes. So how is this syndrome measured? There are over 61 frailty scales that have been created to this date. And some may be familiar with some that we use for um, kidney disease. A six minute walk test is one, the freed frailty phenotype, the short physical performance battery is one, the Groningen Frailty Scale, and the Clinical Frailty Scale, to name a few. The Freed Frailty Phenotype and the Groningen Frailty Indicators 
are two that have actually been validated in the kidney transplant population. Now, there was a frailty work group that was created and published in 2020. It was an AST initiative to build consensus related to a specific frailty measurement in the care of solid organ transplant. This group summarized 12 frailty instruments that had been applied to the end-stage kidney disease patients and KT, kidney transplant patients. And basically the take-home point was that the ideal frailty metric for the kidney transplant population is unknown. There were no clear decisions on what scale was superior to use in this population. So future goals, we really need to find an accurate tool to predict and improve frailty related to outcomes in the KT setting. So, so many scales, so many transplant centers. So, you know, frailty is assessed by many transplant centers. So I'd like if anybody or all of you can share at your current centers, what tools do you use to measure frailty and which team member on the transplant team evaluates frailty? Here at Banner University Medical Center, the dietitian started the initiative to start assessing frailty in our transplant candidates. So here we use the freed frailty phenotype as mentioned earlier by Sunshine, as well as the short physical performance battery. Our dietitians have been assessing this since 2018, and we've been mostly using the freed frailty phenotype. We've noticed that some of its components are more subjective, um, asking the patient how on a scale uh, last seven days, how exhausted they are. And if they say more than three days of exhaustion out of seven days, that is considered frailty based on exhaustion criteria only. This question could be really difficult for dialysis patients, especially because most patients after dialysis feel pretty wiped out and exhausted. So we felt that this did lead to a, a bit skewed, more subjective assessments. We have now been going and transitioning to the short physical performance battery, which has helped us get that lower extremity function right there in clinic, allowing for the balance test, sit to stands, and the four meter timed walk. We are including the dynamometer, the grip strength, which is a fried frailty phenotype assessment uh, within the short physical performance battery, because this is also a diagnostic tool for malnutrition. So we do feel it is appropriate to collect that at the time of frailty screening as well. If patients are borderline frail, sometimes we do send them for a six minute walk test with our pulmonary team. This is not done by the transplant dietitian at our center. We do have a pulmonologist team that does the six minute walks and are trained for that. Um, so if there's any concern, if someone's on borderline for the SPPB, we do send them for additional testing. So at the University of Cincinnati, we use the six minute walk test, uh, which is a functional test where the patient has to walk for six minutes and we check their O2 during that time and see how far they can walk um, within those six minutes. So that's what we use. We don't use it on everybody. There's certain patients we will ask for it. We believe may be at risk for frailty, but not for every single patient. Atrium Health White Forest, we use a very similar approach to what uh, Summer's team does. The only difference is our pre-transplant coordinators actually perform the assessment. 
on all patients at their initial encounter with our education session. So we also noticed the sort of subjective nature and the skewed outcome with the exhaustion questions and the unintentional weight loss. So we do the combination of free frailty phenotype and the short physical performance battery. We've also in the last 15 months been using sort of a self-assessment tool that we created adapted from the SF36 questionnaire. And that questionnaire kind of gives us a little bit of insight into how the patients perceive their health as a contributing factor in their functional abilities or limitations. So we found that very helpful to this point. Wow. Thanks for sharing, everyone. Definitely some overlap in assessment tools used and um, also some variability in who measures it and how, how it's applied. If someone were to pursue kidney transplantation and um, they're frail, what impact would frailty have on potential access to transplant and transplant outcomes? Thinking about this question from a coordinator standpoint, I think that frailty's initial impact on access to transplantation would be that those patients who we initially assess as too frail often experience significant delays in completing their evaluation, being placed on the waiting list, and ultimately making it to their successful kidney transplant. We know that frailty is associated with an increased risk of wait list as well as post-op mortality. We know that frailty at the time of transplant or really any major surgical procedure is associated with increased risk of delirium, increased length of stays, those higher risk of a delayed graft function, and higher incidence of those early readmissions. With all of this potential, all of this research-based evidence that there are negative outcomes associated with frailty, we focus very strongly upfront on optimizing someone's functional status. Um, and I think that that's super important for, for the candidates to understand. Absolutely. And so if, if somebody is determined to be frail at the time of their evaluation, how is this information communicated to other team members or even to the candidate? UC Medical Center of Cincinnati, we, we really have a collaborative approach to dis- discussing candidacy um, for frailty. And at the initial visit, the nurse coordinator, surgeon, social worker, and the nephrology team will usually review concerns and then our overall impression of the situation. This is really helpful because the patient doesn't always relay the same information during the visit. Sometimes important items are left out. For example, like somebody using an assistive device or recent weight loss, falls, or any mental health concerns. And then if frailty is of concern, then it's later discussed at our transplant selection meeting in front of the committee board to determine the next steps. What sort of reactions um, might you get when you discuss frailty with patients? You know, many may associate being frail with being elderly. So how does that discussion typically go? At our center, um, because of the way we evaluate frailty kind of upfront, almost in an assembly line fashion before they receive any teaching or uh, any other assessment, right when they walk through the door, we're putting them through that short physical performance battery and um, being the, the free uh, frailty phenotype. They are having little to no preparation or expectation of why we are doing these little you know, exams with them. Um, the patients proceed on to our education class and then learn about frailty, the whys, the who's, and then what's to come if someone is frail. After class, as we're talking with the patients individually about their next steps, patients who fall into that 
frail or pre-frail category have an individual discussion. And we include their family, their support persons with that discussion. And oftentimes they understand and are amendable to going home and becoming a little bit more strong. Our surgical director dislikes the word frail. So we actually focus on the word fit as our assessment outcome, which helps to take some of that negativity out of the initial delay in their evaluation. And I've noticed a lot of our caregivers or support people often like to fill the role of motivating and encouraging their loved ones to go home and do more so that their reassessments are improved and that they can continue on towards the waiting list. We do communicate and do as much as we can back to the referring providers, the dialysis units on the need for prehab so that when the patients come in, they've been given as much of a tool tool kit, so to speak, as they can to do a little bit better. That's such a cool point you brought up there to kind of spin it in a more positive light. I definitely know in my experience, um, yeah, it's definitely more negative to call somebody frail or to to have that discussion and using the word fit maybe instead of frail is um, an interesting approach, definitely more positive. Is it possible to distinguish the difference between those who are frail um, or not fit that would benefit from transplant versus those who may be too frail to get that benefit? As I mentioned before, there's a really high prevalence of frailty in those with end-stage kidney disease. So we really have to ask ourselves, which frail patients with end-stage kidney disease can benefit from transplant over chronic dialysis? As frailty is, is defined as this diminished ability to recover from physiological stressors, undergoing a kidney transplant and the first three months post-transplant are, are significant stress on their bodies. With the use of these different metrics to determine frailty, we do know that frailty is strongly associated with a lower pre- and post-transplant outcome compared to those without frailty. But we know that giving or a patient getting a kidney transplant will or has the ability to benefit from getting off of dialysis in general. Bottom line answer of this is we, we don't really know yet. We haven't been able to define the phenotypes of frail patients who are expected to benefit from transplant over dialysis. We don't have strong trials to show the improved outcomes with interventions, such as prehabilitation, which is working on physical function before the transplant, and even rehabilitation, which is working on their physical function after transplant. So once we have better uh, studies or information from that standpoint, maybe then we can start determining a little bit better. And I think that's why we all do things differently all around the country. Thank you for sharing that. It's so interesting to to think about that and maybe that we just need to know more, have more information to help guide our practice. And so now we'll kind of transition to focusing more on what to do about frailty and how we can intervene. So Tony, from the patient perspective, could you share your story regarding how kidney failure affected your physical function or your energy and how your physical function and conditioning were kind of assessed um, and evaluated during your transplant evaluation? My energy levels definitely dropped during dialysis. 
Listen dialysis from 10 o'clock in the morning till 3.30 in the afternoon, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. After dialysis, I don't need, didn't even have the strength to pick up a spoon or fork to eat. You're just so wiped out. So that was one of the takeaways from that. I, I went to physical therapy and you know, prior to the um, kidney transplant to get conditioned for it, clearly I, I went, I had dialysis Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I'd work out very hard Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sundays. And uh, it's good that I did the conditioning and did that for about oh, a good three months prior to the surgery. Uh, it was helpful for the recovery because once you get the kidney, you're, you're down a little bit. And uh, so I encourage people to continue exercising, eat right, uh, watch the fluids, uh, watch the fluids and don't eat garbage food. Um, just if anything is processed, don't even look at it. Yeah. So was the physical therapy something that your transplant team recommended? And how did you get into physical therapy? Yeah, good question. Yes, they recommended it. I, I'm glad they did. It was a good call on their part. Physical therapists, they were, they were, they knew their stuff. They knew what buttons to push. <laughs> yeah, but they, they helped me along and I started out weak and I got stronger as I went along. I joke because my therapist was a tiny little skinny woman and boy, because she worked the heck out of you. <laughs> so she was like, that was my joke with her, but uh, she she did a good job. And, you know, the endurance was one thing and um, the strength. Um, it all had to be built up. If I did not go through that and went through the transplant, I think my recovery time would have been much harder. Thanks for sharing that. And and so during your transplant evaluation, do you remember what tools they used to assess your strength? Was there any kind of particular assessment that they did for you that you recall? I believe they had like a squeeze device. You squeeze a hun. I don't know what the name of it was, but it measured how on the um, how much how many pounds you could squeeze. Measured my pace, how my gait was, and how far I could walk. As far as tools go, I don't think they use anything other than that hand grip thing. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like while well, being your transplant dietitian, we did do those things. So you have a great memory. And they're actually part of a, a tool we call the freed frailty phenotype. So measuring your hand grip strength, your gait speed, your exhaustion. So you did, you know, say you were exhausted on those dialysis days, you mentioned not even having the strength to sometimes pick up a spoon, you know, you're just completely wiped out. That tool also measures your weight changes and then how you're doing with day-to-day -day, like activities of daily living, brushing your teeth, dressing, showering, um, being able to prepare meals and things like that. So yeah, that was the tool used to assess it. So you remember a lot of that. And based on that, that's where the team made a recommendation on your physical therapy, which you went through and you got stronger. Could you talk a little bit to changes in nutrition from, you know, transplant evaluation up until transplant surgery? How did you work with, you know, your dialysis dietitian or were there any protein supplements that, you know, were recommended for you? Yeah, you dietitians were golden to me. I mean, you guys are the best. You know, she sat across me Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and looked at me. She just challenged me like, no, tomorrow. Proteins, I, I got wherever I could. Tuna, anything lean, nothing greasy, nothing fried. If I did not reach my goal, I would supplement that with protein powder or protein shakes. My goal was to reach 100 grams of protein a day. 
I believe the rule of thumb is uh, one half a gram of protein per pound. And so I went a little bit over uh, because I, I wanted to burn off some fat and the proteins heals aids in healing wounds and sores and stuff. So I, I went a little overboard and, but I, I'm glad I did and start to learn where to look for protein. That was a little bit of a, a challenge for me because I'm not a bodybuilder and bodybuilders look at a peanut and can tell you what's in it. I had to do my research you know, watch your water weight because the more fluid they take off of you, the weaker you get. So whatever your dry weight is, stay close. Do not exceed your your intake level. Otherwise, it's going to be harder for you to bounce back at the end of the day. Well, it sounds like a combination of physical therapy and good nutrition, addressing protein deficits and really sticking to your fluid restriction to prevent high water weight gains and that subsequent like weakness and exhaustion after dialysis was really important in addressing some of that deconditioning and weakness before transplant surgery. So I'd like to open up this next question to the group to get a few perspectives. If a patient is determined to be frail, how can frailty be addressed in primary care clinics, the dialysis center, or even the transplant center? What community resources are available? I wanted to start this off with at least saying that we identify frailty in patients, not to deter patients from transplantation, but to find the best ways for them to undergo a successful transplant and post-transplant time. And every transplant center has their own way of assessing frailty. And from that point, how to address the concerns, whether it is primarily nutrition, physical strength, or managing comorbid conditions better, that's where everyone kind of also does their own thing. So as a nephrologist, we communicate with um, the primary nephrologist and we engage with the with the dialysis unit to see how we can get the patient to be at their fittest possible in order to be transplanted successfully. So we have that discussion with their general nephrologist. And our coordinators also can communicate with the dialysis unit as well as our social workers. And I think that's where I'll I'll ask Amanda to kind of say a little bit more about that from the dialysis side. Previously, when I worked in the dialysis unit, we really use that feedback from the transplant teams to help the patient to meet that goal of transplant. So whether it was um, related to mobility and they perhaps needed a PT referral, the nephrologist would help in coordinating that and whatever those barriers would be, we would just basically kind of help that patient to meet those goals. Our dietitians also work with the patient closely if there is a nutrition component. I know some centers may have prehabilitation, so getting them rehab before transplant and post uh, rehabilitation after transplant. There are some other programs out there that do have their own collaborative approaches. There are different ways that we all uh, manage and tackle this. Thanks for sharing. It's nice to hear that there's a nice strong collaboration between you know, a person's home dialysis center where, you know, they go there multiple times a week and really have a nice round, well-rounded multidisciplinary team there too. And so I'd like to ask you, Summer, since you've worked in transplant for many years and were really instrumental in starting the frailty assessments at your center, could you tell us a little bit about your initiatives to address frailty and what results have come from your initiatives or what you'd like to see happen? 
Yes, thanks, Kristen. Our standard follow-up process for frail transplant candidates really consists of a physical therapy referral and ongoing nutrition counseling. But unfortunately, we're not really seeing the level of physical therapy follow-up that we would hope for, either due to financial constraints for the patient or time barriers. So in order to solve and address this issue, the transplant dietitians here at Banner solicited help from our hospital's physical therapists. And together, we've recorded a multimedia transplant prehabilitation program. So we're waiting to initiate this program until we have full IRB approval to use it as a part of a pilot study. The pandemic has really allowed us to think out of the box and attempt to help as many patients in a safe and sustainable way. We'd like to see this video eventually provide, you know, adequate self-led physical therapy to patients in their own homes on a daily basis. So if the results of using a prehabilitation video is successful, we'd like to provide this video to any patient who's identified as pre-frail or frail using the short physical performance battery at our center. And I feel like the collaboration between follow-up ongoing nutrition counseling with the dietitian, and this self-led prehabilitation program can work synergistically together to really provide better outcomes to help these patients improve their functional status. That's such a cool, innovative way of approaching physical therapy. I know in my experience, oftentimes patients even have a hard time getting into physical therapy. They're waiting months because they're so busy. So having a video that somebody could just do at home, how easy and how approachable. So very cool. I hope to learn more later about how that initiative goes and hopefully we can use it across multiple centers. It sounds like a lot of factors go into addressing frailty, whether it's addressing nutrition, their physical function through physical therapy, perhaps other consults to address comorbid conditions. So how long can it take to improve frailty? I always approach the improvement of frailty as, you know, Dr. Patel mentioned earlier, being just fit for transplant. And I remind patients that Frailty and malnutrition is like running a marathon. You don't sign up for a marathon today and run it tomorrow. You sign up today for a marathon in six to eight months from now because you have to train for it. So this is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It takes a lot of daily ongoing work, uh, lots of encouragement, and just making sure that you don't have goals that are not achievable in certain timeframes. So I always warn our, our patients, um, you know, that we have identified that their physical functional status does need to be improved in their nutrition and that it is a team approach and they might not see changes, you know, for three, six, nine months and to not worry about that because slow and steady increments means long lasting change. And of course, just better transplant outcomes. So we really set the stage for this is a long-term issue uh, that, you know, can be fixed through time, through perseverance, and, you know, just trying to keep them motivated and excited uh, to work towards that goal. That sounds like a great way of managing expectations and, and that it's, it does, it took a little bit of time to develop frailty and deconditioning. So it's also going to take time to address all the components that are contributing to being frail. So it sounds like a really good discussion that you have with patients. Amanda, tell us a little bit more about 
cognition. We know cognition can play a role in the development of frailty. So what tests are available to assessing cognition and what roles can social workers play in assessing and addressing cognition? We complete a full psychosocial assessment on the day of the multidisciplinary clinic visit um, with the patient. Since we are somewhat limited in our time on that day, we don't usually dive into any in-depth cognitive testing, but part of our assessment does review who helps them with managing their medical care, and there is a health literacy assessment, which can help in determining whether it's related to cognition or perhaps low health literacy. Based on our assessment, if we do feel there are concerns with cognition, then we will refer them to our transplant psychologist for further evaluation. Now, our transplant psychologist completes a psychological evaluation that does include cognitive testing, including the MOCA. After the transplant psychologist completes her evaluation, we'll work together to determine how to best address these cognitive barriers, which can vary on each patient. So it may be decided that the patient will need additional support from caregivers after transplant for a longer period of time than usual, or the patient may even be referred for a full neurocognitive testing. Now, if the patient is needing additional support, we can help to explore available services or community resources. In this case, I do usually involve the dialysis unit social worker uh, since they have more interactions with the patient. And a lot of times they may have already been working on some of these things with the patient. Great. And, you know, Sunshine, as a provider, what resources or referrals do you use to address this concern? Yeah, so I think just the collaboration with the social worker and the clinical psychologist, they do a really good job identifying this and kind of referring out. If there are some issues or problems, they can be referred out to neuropsychology, neurooccupational therapy for medical management, um, for other things. Oh, interesting. I had never heard about neuro-occupational therapy before, so that's definitely an interesting thing for medical um, management or medication management. Kind of coming back to you, Summer, um, earlier we mentioned that inadequate oral intake and malnutrition increase risk for becoming frail. So how can malnutrition be prevented or if identified, treated? Malnutrition can actually just, first of all, be assessed using the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetic in Aspen 2012 malnutrition consensus guidelines, which take into consideration, you know, oral intake, weight loss, a nutrition-focused physical assessment, including fat and muscle wasting, fluid accumulation, and hand grip strength. Um, So in order to diagnose malnutrition, two out of five of these criteria need to be met. And then the severity is classified as non-severe or severe. Inadequate oral intake can lead to muscle wasting, which then contributes to the deconditioning and sarcopenia, which Dr. Patel and the rest of the panel mentioned earlier. And since chronic kidney disease is an inflammatory state, unfortunately, this does increase the risk for malnutrition, um, anorexia, poor appetite, muscle losses. So in order to help prevent malnutrition, early use of oral nutrition supplements can be encouraged or even prescribed by a provider. Appetite stimulants can be used, promoting physical activity to help naturally stimulate the appetite. And if malnutrition is identified in a frail patient, addressing that physical fitness alone is just not going to be enough to resolve the issue. So this is where ongoing nutrition counseling from a registered dietitian is key in providing that education and support, goal setting, 
motivational interviewing to help facilitate change and just really understand what the goals are and what we're trying to achieve. Um, nutrition support and physical therapy, like I mentioned earlier, do work together to manage frailty. And that is a, a long ongoing you know, chronic concern that we're trying to resolve. So really starting early in the dialysis units where all the, you know, dialysis patients are assessed by a dietitian on an ongoing basis um, can really help set the stage to preventing those issues um, moving forward into transplant. So malnutrition itself is quite a complex syndrome with multiple moving parts. So um, it's great to have our registered dietitians and other team members to help address such a complex nutritional issue. Tony, what would you recommend to other, you know, transplant candidates and people on dialysis, you know, preparing for transplant when going through that experience? Like what recommendations or what do you want to share with them? In the beginning, before the transplant, get, get in shape, do as much exercise as you can. Watch whatever you eat. Be very tenacious about it. Don't skip. Don't cheat. It's your body you're cheating, not anybody else. Eat vegetables, uh, fruits, very lean food. Uh, my motto was, is uh, if I was a caveman or cowboy, if I couldn't find a grocery store, I won't eat it. So therefore, Twinkies were out. Yeah, as, as close to Mother Earth as you can get, that's where you want to go. And how about the energy or effort it required to do things like physical therapy? Any recommendations on you know, the grit or level of, you know, intensity uh, you need? It was uh, very hard in the beginning. Uh, it was very hard. And the therapist was, um, we started out slow. And as time went on, we built up time and endurance. So we put more weight on. And there's some days she worked being so hard, I couldn't even walk to the car. But the next day, I felt like Superman. I mean, she, they know their stuff. They, the people in, in their areas, they know what they're doing. And so we started out slow and then light and then as time went on we progressed to longer duration and heavier weights well thank you for sharing the experience and you know how much energy and effort it took but that you know taking it small steps one by one you slowly build over time you know you can't go from zero to hero overnight and so it does take a level of determination and just you know, tenacity, like you said, to, to go through this and, and do what you need to do to get stronger to prepare for a transplant surgery. So yeah, thank you for sharing. Finally, I'd like to pose this question to the entire panel. From your respective disciplines perspective, what are the most important aspects to know about frailty syndrome, how to prevent and treat it, or are there actions we could take as an interprofessional team to address it better? So I feel as a social worker, I think it's important that we assess that frailty isn't secondary to a mental health diagnosis or a psychosocial barrier such as depression, food insecurity, maybe inability to care for themselves at home, or even having minimal support at home. From the nephrologist side of things, we collaborate with the team in regards to nutrition and the physical strength and, and sending out the referrals. But for us also communicating with the primary nephrologist and managing the comorbid conditions, making sure their diabetes, their blood pressure, their cardiac disease, their peripheral vascular disease, there's a lot of uh, other medical conditions that, that feed into their frailty. So our job is to make sure that those are all under control and um, they're on the right therapeutics for all of that. 
And from a nutrition standpoint, I, I think one of the things I, I don't want anybody to forget is that frailty can come at any age and at any size. And one of the things that can be really you know, difficult with some of maybe the bias that, you know, healthcare professions have, or just trained thoughts about BMI and age. I just want to make sure that everybody remembers malnutrition can come at any size. And sometimes we have screening criteria in transplant that only has a dietitian see the patient if they're 65 or older, or their BMI is below 20 or above 30. And this is really taking an approach that can miss a lot of opportunities to provide nutrition counseling for even that pre-frail category to make sure that they don't um, transition into frailty, as well as just making sure that we are having a well-rounded approach and not guessing what might be going on with the patient just based on some um, values on a piece of paper. So, you know, I would just say my biggest takeaway is, you know, as a healthcare professional, just uh, assessing everybody individually and making sure that everybody gets the care that they need, despite what values that come up on paper. And I'll just say when it comes to frailty, I think we need to build a process that works for each, each program's initiative. Meaning first, we, we really need to identify it by screening for it. It should have, you know, a subjective and objective information to identify that. And then second, we need to build the resources to treat and improve outcomes and frailty. And then last, the entire team really needs to be in agreement that this is an important aspect of their evaluation um, for transplant. And with that, I'd like to thank all of you for your valued contribution to this informative discussion about frailty and people living with renal failure and for those pursuing transplant. I hope that our listeners find this content as helpful and insightful as I have. To sum up our discussion, I think the main takeaway points are that frailty is a very complex multifactorial syndrome that can, as Summer shared, affect any age any body size. And so it's something to be assessed in everyone. And it takes a multidisciplinary team to approach and address frailty. There are multiple tools used across centers to assess this complex syndrome. And though there's not one perfect tool that is determined to be the gold standard for all, each center is taking an approach to, to try and tease out which patients need that assistance, that extra oral nutrition supplementation, that extra physical therapy, or those extra assessments in uh, addressing cognitive barriers or psychosocial barriers. And so the team really works together. And then even across dialysis centers and transplant centers and primary care offices, everybody can take a role to assist each other in giving the best quality care to all patients. Thank you again to our panel members for their contributions to this important discussion. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us on this ride of the Kidney Commute. Remember, eligible audiences can earn CE credit for listening to this episode by clicking the link in the episode description. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please email the team at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. Stay tuned for future huddles, and in the meantime, continue to let new perspectives inspire your practice. 